Hello, everyone, and welcome to season three of The Gaze. I'm Aisha. And I'm Maya. And we're back for another whole season. Yeah, I can't believe we made it to season three. It feels like eons ago we started this podcast. That's true. It's been a couple of years. And it started out as a radio show, then became a podcast. And after the last season, we wondered if we'd come back for another season. But we're back. We're actually back with funding this year. And that's really exciting for us. You'll notice that the production value of our podcast is going up quite a bit because Women in View, which is a really great organization that is looking for gender parity in film and television for women in Canada, uh, has uh, generously supported our season. I know, but you know what? I am going to miss the DIY quality of our podcast. Like there is something sort of like charming about our improvised <laughs> soundscapes. <laughs> but regardless, it's a really exciting season for us because we've got four episodes planned and this is episode one. But before we actually get into the meat of this whole thing, Maya, you've been really busy. So give us a really quick update on what you've been up to. So I just wrapped and I'm in post-production for a short doc about my dad called The Haircut with CBC. So it'll be on CBC's online online platforms soon. And um, I'm also in an incubator program called Breakthrough through the Documentary Organization of Canada to develop my feature doc about zombies. And then I just released a music video for language arts with my partner. We shot this really psychedelic, fun music video that we used all this footage we shot from like Mexico and British Columbia, and we projected it through a giant kaleidoscope. Oh, it's such a great video. I actually just watched it. And we're going to link it to our page. So make sure that you check it out because it does make you feel like you're five again and you're looking through one of those turning kaleidoscopes. So it's a fantastic video, Maya. Yes, thank you. And Aisha, you've been working on a mammoth of a project. Well, yeah, The Mammoth is my first documentary feature film, and I have been talking about it quite a lot in the last couple of years, if you have been listening to this podcast for that long. And I finally started production. So in September, I dragged my entire family to Saskatchewan, and I'm still shooting, shooting a little bit in Toronto and going back to Saskatchewan a few more times. So it is a long-term project, but I hope that within the next season or two of The Gaze, this film will be done. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Well, we're really excited that you are back listening to us because over the last two seasons, we've also gotten some wonderful, wonderful feedback from our listeners. Actually, I was in the subway last week and I ran into your sister and she was with a friend and she asked me how I knew Hasina. And I told her that I knew you and that we did a podcast together. And she like freaked out. I was like, oh my gosh, you're Maya from the gays. And I was so, that was so funny. It was like a celebrity sighting <laughs> So anyway, it's really awesome that people who aren't our immediate family or friends are listening to The Gaze and we really appreciate having you here and we would love your feedback. So thanks for listening. We have a really exciting season planned. You know, I, I don't believe in a kind of the straight line of history. So it's not that. It's not that there's been a progression or a line or a simple evolution. There's just, there are different trends, waves, things that happen and they, they ebb and flow, they come and go. So when I first started working professionally, it was a very exciting time in Canadian filmmaking in particular. People like Adam Goyan and Patricia Rosema and uh, Clement Virgo were starting out. And then it felt at that time that Canadian cinema was being entirely transformed. 
So that was Cameron Bailey, Artistic Director of the Toronto International Film Festival, talking about an exciting time uh, when he started out in his career, where um, really different types of films were being made by some interesting and important Canadian filmmakers, and how some of the changes and moves that were happening in cinema seemed to kind of regress, uh, and things reverted back to how they were. Uh, so uh, we thought it was a, a great place to start because this season, uh, season three of The Gaze, we will be looking at how to create sustainable change in the industry. What are some initiatives and real solutions to make that happen? Right, because if you've been listening to us for the first two seasons, you know that Maya and I are very good at isolating and identifying some of the problems and really talking about them and inviting guests to sort of help us illuminate those issues. Then we thought, you know what, let us shift a little bit and talk about solutions instead this time, because... It is 2018, and we're hoping things will change. So in this first episode, we're taking it a bit broader. Mm-hmm. We're going to be speaking with a lot of important leaders in the industry. We'll be talking, of course, to Cameron Bailey about um, his involvement and what he can do or what he sees as possible solutions to making it. A shift. We also speak with Rina Fraticelli, the executive director of Women in View, about some really amazing initiatives she's doing to uh, create real change. And we speak with Rad Sinapoli, a film critic from Now, and his very interesting involvement, new and recent involvement, in shining light on the issue and some solutions. And we start off with Cameron Bailey because when we thought about this episode, we thought about the article he wrote for the Globe and Mail because it was an idealist call to action for filmmakers. He wrote an article in which he was addressing filmmakers, actually, and not necessarily broadcasters or institutions and saying, what we need is we need the stories that Canada is telling to change. And what he's saying in that article was that Canadians or Canadian filmmakers are really focused on stories of alienation. It's kind of become sort of a little bit of a defining quality of Canadian cinema. And instead, he would like to see more films that engage uh, the outside world and actually engage the lived reality of Canadians. So in this interview, we wanted to sort of start and really hear from someone who has some ideas of what kinds of films we should be making. What I was calling attention to in that article for the Globe and Mail was what I saw as, you know, a lack of thriving film culture in Canada that truly addressed the reality of what Canada is today. We see almost 400 feature films that are made in Canada every year. And just given what film is in terms of the cost that it takes to to make a movie and who gets to make film, the kind of education that's needed, most of the filmmakers are middle and upper middle class filmmakers. Most of them still are white and they're making films from a kind of a perspective that I thought just didn't fully reflect certainly the Canada that I live in. And I wanted to see more of those stories that were engaged with the social reality that, that, that saw the drama just in, in the real lives that Canadians are living. Um, lives that are, are full of drama, full of threat and danger and excitement uh, and interest and surprising stories Uh, and rather than simply see the story again of the coming of age of a young middle-class white man which we have seen many many times (laughs) I just thought let's let's look around us you know I mean if you're riding public transit in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver there are hundreds of stories all around you and I just was not seeing those stories on screen and I wanted to call attention to that. 
I mean, it's interesting because in the article you don't call that out. You don't mm -hmm. say, I want to see more racial diversity or I want to see more. You're a bit more sort of careful about how you phrased it. The way I phrased it was more, uh, you know, I think the, the headline that the Globe editors put on was, it's not about you, it's about us, speaking to Canadian filmmakers. And it, that really is the heart of it. And when I say us, that includes that kind of diversity because, you know, Canada is a country with a rapidly changing population demographically. And for the most part, we're not seeing it in the culture that Canada produces and disseminates most widely and I think that has to change otherwise we're going to feel like we're not looking at ourselves when we look at our films and our TV shows so I, I do want to pay attention to that it's not simply calling for more ethnic and racial diversity although that's a key part of it it's really just you know can we see ourselves can we see Canada today on screen what are some of the things you think that needs to happen in our uh, industry in our local industry to push more of this you know, Telefilm Canada just announced that they will be making more first features. They're working with Matt Johnson and um, others to kind of ramp up uh, the, I think they're going to make 50 first feature films every year, which I can't wait to see them because that is not an easy thing to do. You know, they've said that they're going to look hard in terms of who gets to make those first feature films. I think it's really critical that, that who they choose as the filmmakers does reflect the diversity of the country and reflects the kind of voices that we've been talking about. If they can do that, then I think there's a chance. If they can do what institutions almost never do in this country, which is to actually tap fully into the creativity that's out there, then I think we're, we're going to see some amazing work. I have been so impressed by the music that's coming out of the suburbs of cities like Toronto, for instance, right? They're not coming out of official institutional cultural programs. They're coming out of people sitting in their bedrooms on their laptops making beats that then people like Jay-Z hear. And suddenly, you know, they're global and they never went through the Canadian cultural infrastructure. I think that cultural infrastructure, those institutions like Telephone Canada and frankly like TIFF as well, are going to get left in the dust if we don't tap into that creativity. It is extraordinary what Canadian artists achieve on very limited means and uh, we've got to help them. I kind of wanted to come back to this sort of telefilm thing that you brought up because one of the things I find extremely frustrating is the fact that you have telephone, for example, making this announcement of 50 first films where you have the NFB saying that, you know, 50% of all funding is going to go to women. Mm -hmm. And I find, like, how do you make this change actually sustainable? Because mm -hmm. the NFB, for example, used to have Studio D and then it dismantled the whole thing and now we're like, oh, and now we're going to give women again 50%. So it's like, Will this be sustainable change? Like, how do you make that actually sustainable? It's frustrating. I don't want to have this conversation again in five years. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but your granddaughters will be having this conversation. <laughs> you know, should you have granddaughters? Um, you know, I, having been in this a long time, I don't think that anything is necessarily sustainable. I think it's constant work that's required mm. by us and by the people who are coming after us, right? So I think things like Studio D was a great innovation at the time and did important work and it didn't last forever, but I think it did set an example that then others can follow. So I, I, I wouldn't say that all of the, the work that Studio D accomplished or that the current initiatives are accomplished just gets swept away. It never does. There's always a trace that, that, that can then be built on, but it's, it's not a clear upward path all the time. It never is. And history just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. <laughs> Good answer. Damn it. <laughs> I guess what I wanted to is who do you think are some of the key people that would play a role in making this change more sustainable, or even happen over the next little while? Outside of yourself, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a lot more than me. <laughs> I can tell you that much. There are a lot of, it, let me put it this way the Canadian film industry is, by global standards, small. 
right? There's probably 30 to 40 people who have a lot of authority, a lot of power in terms of what decisions are made, um, where the money is spent in this country on film, uh, what films get distribution, what films get broadcast, who gets support as a writer or director, what films are invited into the major festivals, all of that kind of thing. It's a small group of people that makes those decisions ultimately. Those people need to be as aware as possible and constantly refreshing their awareness of you know what's most urgent, what needs to be supported, what needs to be seen, what needs to be championed. I include myself in that, but there are many others as well. And it's a, it's a constant process. And, and you can get complacent. You can get a bit lazy sometimes when you've been in it for a long time and think that you know what you need to know. But none of us ever knows everything that we need to know. Right? It's a constant process of learning. You, you know, I have spent a lot of time with filmmakers as they come up in their first and second and third feature films, but there's always a new generation that you don't know anything about, right? And you gotta go out and find those people and figure out how you can help them and how you can support them. We realize that a lot of the people that listen to us are actually young filmmakers as mm-hmm. well. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I wonder what kind of advice you give to young filmmakers who want to be seen and want to be part of being on your radar. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? How do you actually hear about the next generation of filmmakers you just mentioned? Well, the obvious and somewhat flip answer is just to make great stuff. (laughs) Uh, But in order to do that and to get to that next step, I do think there's real value in watching great films and watching as widely as possible and as deeply as possible. And look, I know from spending a lot of time with filmmakers over many, many years that a lot of filmmakers don't watch a lot of movies, right? Or they watch within a fairly narrow range given what is available out there. And, you know, I personally think that people who just love narrative filmmaking and telling stories should be watching experimental films as well and documentaries as well and vice versa. You should be watching everything and from all over because you widen your possibilities. You can expand your palette if you actually understand the full range of cinema. I think the great filmmakers always do that. You can tell when someone really knows the language of cinema in all of the many ways that it's used. Once you've done that, or as you're doing that, I think you also have to realize that there's so many different ways that you could become a filmmaker. You don't have to think about, when am I going to get to make the feature film that fulfills my vision? It's, you know, if I write it down, it looks like it's going to cost $20 million. I don't have $20 million, so I can't be a filmmaker. Not true. You know, you can make a film in this room. If you're smart, you've got great ideas and you've got great people to work with. So there is no threshold in terms of what you need to start. Um, you got to start somewhere and you got to keep making films. It's like with anything, the more you do it, if you're any good, the better you get. And then once you're doing all of those things, and I think you have to understand that there is there's an industrial culture to this. There are gatekeepers, there are decision makers, and you have to get to know who those people are, understand more about what they're looking for, and try to get your work in front of them. That's a great segue into my question about Tiff's new initiative, Share Her Journey. Can Mm. you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, for our 42 years, we have been interested in and committed to cinema by women. And, you know, speaking of how much things are changing or not changing, we realized that actually, as much as we've been doing to try to help gain more attention for for films by women, that the numbers weren't changing at all in terms of how many films were being made, uh, financed, uh, distributed by women. And we thought it's just a massive missed opportunity. So we launched a a fundraising campaign last year to raise money that we would then put towards programs to support female filmmakers. Training programs, mentorship programs, awareness programs in terms of really amplifying the conversations 
around gender in cinema. So in concrete terms, what is this program doing? Uh, the, so the program is first a fundraising program to raise the money. When the, when the money is, is starting to come in, what we will do is we will identify filmmakers that we can work with to give them opportunities to be mentored and to advance their projects. So for instance, if you're a film producer and you've got a project and you've never made a feature film before, we will put you with a, an experienced feature film producer who can help, help you uh, hone your project, make it better, introduce you to the people that you need, that sort of thing. If you wonder why it's important to talk about gender in cinema, we will have a series of talks, uh, public talks and industry talks, which we've all already begun, in fact, to talk about how gender influences how we all look at movies. I'm the kind of person who likes to just like look at the other person across the aisle on the subway or on the streetcar or something and, and imagine what their story is. And sometimes you get a chance to hear their story because people will talk <laughs> somewhere. You can tell from, from behavior, you know, what somebody's story is. And I guess in a perfect world, the kind of the richness, the range, the depth, the complexity, the surprise in the stories that you can imagine on a typical bus riding up through one of our cities is reflected in the films we see. They're as exciting, as surprising, uh, as diverse, as inclusive as, as that experience is. And if, if we ever get to that point, then that will be utopia. Yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> It's left. not on the TTC. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, those are true stories. That's great. <laughs> because, well, we'll just never get there on time. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, there is that. There is that, too. And then five will come all at once. <laughs> well, thank you so yeah, much for taking the time. My pleasure. Cameron. Thank you, yeah, Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks. So that was Cameron Bailey talking about TIFF's new initiative called Share Her Journey. But there's been some interesting initiatives that have been happening already to make a big shift in the industry. And some of the most notable ones are coming from Women in View. Yeah, and Women in View is the organization that's funding our podcast this season, but it's also an organization on whose board I sit. And we were really interested in talking to Rina Faricelli, who is the executive director of Women in View, about one of the new pieces that they're contributing to fighting this problem with gender parity in the industry. It's called the Diversity Toolkit. So we're really excited that Rena took some time out to sit down with us and talk about this new initiative. So thank you, Rena, for being here with us today. You have a very long career in film, and you started way back with the National Film Board. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you did at the NFB, and in particular at Studio D, which I think some people don't know what Studio D is, but you played a really central role there. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I became the executive producer of Studio D. Studio D was the women's studio. Uh, at the time, the film board, and even now, is divided into studios. Some are regional and some are genre-based. And a radical uh, departure from that was the creation of a studio exclusively for women filmmakers. It was a kind of miraculous opportunity at one level to be able to kind of approach Dion Brand and approach Lynn Fur and Erlen Wiseman and approach, uh, you know, Lillian Allen and just approach a whole bunch of people who I knew as artists and invite them to propose stuff to us. So a lot of young filmmakers I speak to don't actually know what Studio D is because it shut down. Mm -hmm. What led to that decision? It happened after I left. And so I think that there were a number of factors. I think partly there was a sense that uh, the job was done. 
<laughs> which was not true. But I think there was also a sense on some parts that having a single place where all of women's filmmaking had to be in the film board was counterproductive in a way. And I, I think that's still a really open question. You know, there were times when we would argue, okay, there are nine studios for guys and all of the women, whether they're doing documentary or fiction or animation or shorts or whatever, are pigeonholed in a sense. And it's a really it's still a very interesting and dynamic question because on the one hand it was really fabulous, I think, for almost all of the women who worked there to have a place where certain things are taken for granted and where you meet other women and where there are just certain assumptions. On the other hand, there is the question of why would nine-tenths of the resources go elsewhere? So it was a complicated thing, and, and I think at the end it was largely an administrative decision. But I, I had sympathy for both sides, to be honest, that there was something that needed to break open a little bit more, although I certainly didn't have any idea what that was. Yeah, I think one of the things Maya had said in the past and we had talked about a bit more was this idea of hearing about Studio D and then it was closed down. And it's feeling like there's all of these sort of initiatives that come out and then they just end. Mm -hmm. And you just think like, what is a sustainable answer mm -hmm. to that? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting to think of you as having reinvented yourself and now heading Women <laughs> in View. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is you do now? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is many years, many decades later. After I left Studio D, I, I became an independent documentary filmmaker and did that for uh, a number of years, about 10 years. And uh, from there, I ended up being invited to go back to the film board to run their West Coast and uh, Yukon studio. And through that time, I, you know, you never stop being a feminist. Once you see the world through that lens, you don't stop seeing it. But I think I became much more preoccupied with a project-by-project project focus. And it was when I was starting to get ready to leave the West Coast studio of the film board that I encountered a group of women who had commissioned research on women in film in British Columbia. And they asked me to consult with them to see what do we do with this research? Because it was very, very damning. And I was <laughs> shocked. I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was shocked because the film board is a privileged place. There were a lot of women in leadership positions. And I, I don't watch TV. I didn't especially then watch TV much. And I had a young daughter. And, and I looked at these stats and, and thought, what happened? You know, really what happened? Uh, and that led me to commission, not to commission, but to convene a conference to ask everybody in different parts of the industry, like, what do you think happened? Uh, whether they were the artists, whether they were the, the business people or the funders. And everybody had a piece of the pie, and it was very energizing. But what became clear was that as much as the people who come out to a conference like that had no doubt that the situation was severe in the industry as a whole, people were completely oblivious and, in fact, very much in, in denial and kind of dismissed the stats that we were presenting as... Um, oh, very much an aberration. Oh, maybe the dollar was high that year. Oh, there was a writer's strike that year. This can't be true. And so we decided that our little contribution to advancing this would be to track stats for a significant period of time. And we created Women in View just to give us like a, you know, an umbrella organization of, of colleagues and friends. And we were shocked as much as anybody else that the stats were as dramatic as they were 
We were looking mostly at uh, women who were writers, directors, or cinematographers in publicly funded media. And that gave us an opportunity to say, this is our money, this is our culture, these are our tax dollars if you want to get kind of really basic about it. And, you know, there's a great injustice going on here, uh, you know, a civil injustice as well as a cultural injustice. Can you tell us what are some of the... the stats that really shock people and people find incredibly unbelievable that you found in your research? Yeah, as a rule, I think the thing that shocked people the most was this statistic that 17% of directors, typically, you know, there was one one year where it was a little bit higher, but as a rule, it was about 17% of the directors hired uh, using public funds were women. And then when we looked deeper into those statistics, it was interesting to see how over the years we would, you know, list all of the male and female uh, directors. And in the first few years, uh, we also looked at race and indigenous numbers. And it was interesting to see how it wasn't just a fixed number, that the number of new men entering changed all the time. So it wasn't just here are the men, they have experience, so they're going to get the jobs. And here the women that have experience and they, you know, they're a smaller number. No, there were, of course, a body of people with a lot of experience that you expected to see there. But every year there would be these new male directors, emerging directors coming in and getting an opportunity and not every year seeing new uh, female directors. That's interesting. I mean, you've spent a lot of your life working for diversity and working for diversity, not only in gender, but also in race. So thinking about the creative potential of the Canadian film industry, how do you think diversity contributes to that? And what kind of diversity are you looking for or fighting for? I mean, you know, Canada is so um, bold about trumpeting our distinct diversity. And and we are an incredibly fortunate country relative to the norm outside of Canada, particularly now. But that diversity just isn't reflected in the culture. So we don't have, certainly don't have diversity of race. Uh, It's only recently that the efforts of the Indigenous community have started to make an impact so that there's greater awareness and greater support to make sure that those voices are present But if we want to tell stories in a precise way, in a focused way, I mean, narrative, whether you're talking about theater, whether you're talking about fiction, whether you're talking about film, it's all about specificity of story. The more specific, the more precise, the more true to an individual experience, that's when it's going to be a universal story. That's when it can travel the whole world. And we, I think, got stuck for decades with generic stories based on a generic non-existent reality that was kind of a, a mush of North American popular culture. I mean, with some really tremendous exceptions, you know, let's be clear about that. But in terms of where the weight of our investment was, all of this diversity that we have that's so distinct to Canada, um, not just that there's this culture and this culture and this culture and this culture that we that we can draw from, but that all of these different cultures are living in this place and interacting with each other and creating a new reality. 
I mean, Maya and I have spent a lot of time pointing out problems, and this season we kind of wanted to turn a new page, and you're part of that conversation because we're looking at people and organizations that are trying to make a difference and are looking for solutions. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you're just about to launch is one of your solution pieces, which is called the Diversity Toolkit. It's a resource, really, because we think that there are people who are not interested in expanding their horizons. Nothing we're going to be able to do about that except try to get rid of them. But for a lot of people, they're not in the habit of thinking in a more open way or even understanding the patterns that they bought into. And so anything that we can do to prompt them out of their patterns, to nudge them out of their patterns, to get them thinking in a more open, exciting way is important to do. And so we saw a booklet put out in in the UK called Diversity Genius. And it was a very simple booklet. It was very British, very tongue-in-cheek, full of funny remarks from performers that were well-known. And it had advice. And a lot of the advice was really obvious. It dealt with all kinds of diversity from gender to race to ability to age. And it was pretty much communicating the message that really, if you're not fishing from the deepest pool, the widest pool, what are you doing in this business where creativity and originality are, you know, your your gold mine kind of thing? So we thought that we should do something similar for Canada. And, and we did. And we started out with this idea of like this six page, you know, tips to do and not do and checklists and, you know, modern monitoring forms and all of those kinds of things. What we wanted to do was also bring a lot of first-person experience into it. Uh, And so it expanded dramatically into this book that interviews a whole range of people and just gets their stories and uh, their hints, their suggestions, their things to look out for, and marries that with a bunch of tools, suggestions, resources, and just the encouragement to kind of go beyond the norm. So who are you aiming a toolkit at and how are you going to distribute it? How are you going to measure success? I mean, it sounds like such a great idea, but I wonder, like, how is it going to do its work? Yes. No, good question. Um, Yeah, maybe you can ask me that in a year or two. But Mm -hmm. I I mean, we're making a lot of copies. We're distributing it for free. And the primary or let's say the first layer is producers, employers, broadcasters, anybody in a position to hire, anybody in a position of authority to recommend. Those are the people that we think would be the first round of our target. In addition to that, because we've included so many profiles of women across the country in different aspects, it's also aimed at individual women in the industry in two ways. One is there's a bunch of suggestions and resources and helpful remarks for them. But it's also to remind them that there are all these other women in a similar position. And one of the things that we really hope will come out of it for the women in media is to get them to realize how many others like them there are and to turn their energy not entirely away from, but to include, in addition to the Old Boys Network, this tremendous resource of other women who, if they hook up with these other women, they can sidestep that power structure altogether or to a large extent. 
So that was Rena Fredicelli from Women in View talking about some of the initiatives that she's been taking to really shift things in the industry. And she's super badass and she's been really amazing at getting a lot of women filmmakers involved and also allies. So we thought we'd bring on Rad Sinopoli, a really important ally uh, on the gender parity issue, who is a film critic from Now Magazine. I guess we wanted to talk to you a little bit about the work you do around gender parity in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, I read an article you wrote, I think about a year ago, and I was reading the article and it was about gender parity and how Canada is lagging behind. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, wow, yeah, she really gets it, whoever it is, she really (laughs) gets it. And then I finished the article and read your name and I was like, it's a dude. So I was kind of curious about why you are particularly interested in gender parity in film, considering... I mean, not considering that you're a man, but I'm very interested in why you write about this and it seems to be one of the things you've come back to. I don't know if you read an interview I did with Matt Johnson, like uh, where he just took Telephone to Task and Tiff and just the whole industry. That was an eye-opening conversation for me and that's what got me to pay more attention and that's what got me to pay start talking to more filmmakers in the industry and trying to figure things out and map things out so the, the gender parity issue as I started issue, uh, looking into the Canadian film industry then I started noticing the models of not just gender parity but also just diversity and just how there's a lack of representation and we're constantly seeing movies about white kids going up to their cottage and stuff right so like I mean uh, is it, it became, we all know which film yeah. you're referencing go on <laughs> no, there's a lot of them but no, but the thing is, so that particular article that you're talking about, it came to me via Karen Harnish. So there are, I mean, if you think about it, yeah, I wrote the article, but there was a lot of women's voices that shaped that article, right? So I just happened to be the one that listened. But right? you know what I think what I liked about the article yeah. is that, number one, I thought it was quite witty. Yeah. So I could hear your voice in it. Right. So I was very much like, oh, this person really gives a shit. How do you choose your stories? How do they, like, what resonates with you? Why do you decide to, for example, create that article? What was it that just, like, got you and you're like, I have to do this? And then how do you go and pitch it? Well, okay, so I just wait for a spark, an idea that I think I need to write about, and I will pitch it, and oftentimes I'm rejected. Uh, When it comes to other outlets, this is why Now Magazine is a wonderful home for me, and I've been writing for them for 10 years, and I never left, because basically I could tell them I want to do this, and they would be like, go for it. Like, they are just great with me, right? So in terms of the gender parity thing, I didn't take it to anyone else. It, 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 so the way that story developed is that conference happened at TIFF where Telefilm, they were talking about this big announcement and their announcement was nothing. Bear in mind now, TIFF time, this is like where we're like knee deep in junkets and stuff. So my head was like all over the place. But Karen Harnish cornered me. It's like, did you hear what happened? Did you see? I'm like, no, what happened? And then she like uh, pointed me to that conference. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, let me just finish my little junket slate in these interviews and let me and I'm going to get right on this. So so it was brought to me. Now, that story started off as an online story. It was going to be just like it was going to be a small article, but then as I started going and started collecting information and started talking to more women and realizing how big the issue was, I literally sent now a text that said, "What's your next cover? I think this is a cover story." Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it comes to this issue of gender parity, who are some of sort of the people you go to when you want to do your backup on store, you know, on stories or on numbers and figures? Oh, Rena. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like I mean, I'll tell. Here's the thing. I, I can go to uh, Telefilm and they'll give me their their number, the numbers they're comfortable with giving me, and there's that goes for a lot of institutions. But because uh, Rena Fraticelli at Women in View, she does the groundwork. 
she's like my librarian. <laughs> like I have her on speed dial. Anytime I need to check certain figures to check and like hold other people's statements to to account, I'll go to Rena because she's always there. I mean, I, 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 yeah, nothing, I couldn't have done any of these articles without her help, right? Uh, so she's always a prominent figure in terms of like when, when Telephone announced their gender parity results, they weren't telling me what the percentage of uh, was in terms of low budget versus big budget. I had to go to Rena. Because like they are like you know there was they were being very coy about that. Um, you people read Now magazine. I read Now magazine, and I think of like I hope they do. Uh, <laughs> are you sure? People like, who are into film, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So like people who already are interested will read it. Yeah. I'll read the reviews, and half the time I agree, half the time I don't. Mm. But I think of the big names. I think of Norm Wilner. I think of you. I think of Glenn Sumi, and so on. And I think I mean Susan Cole is retired now, and there is no. I don't think of a oh semi retired yeah. whatever however she's playing, um, putting it out there. And I think I don't know another woman at now that is a big figure that I would follow as much or has established themselves so much. So I kind of wonder like what you see the role of sort of male critics in a very male environment when it comes to film criticism, when mm. it comes to this issue. Like, do you at all feel a certain kind of responsibility or do you feel like... Well, no, absolutely. Okay, look, this issue doesn't come to me a lot because I'm a person of color. I'm like one of the only film critics of color. So people don't complain to me about that. At the same time, I'm a man. And maybe the question is like, you know, like we should be having more... Fe I mean, definitely we need to have more female film critics, right? And the only... But the, see, here's the thing. It's easy for me to say that because no one is willing to like... No one's targeting me, you know, to make space for women. They're targeting the men, the white men to make that space, right? So it's very easy to... The only times I've ever lost a gig to a female it was for the absolute best reasons it's because of the sexual harassment stuff that comes up came along those are the situations where people want me to come and speak about it because i started speaking about it before the harvey weinstein allegations before because i started reporting on it people are like oh maybe you should come on and talk about it and then then you know i would say uh shouldn't you have a woman speak right um and uh, you know that's the thing though we shouldn't need those excuses to have a woman come out and speak for on this subject. You sh they should also be able to speak on every subject, like every any kind of film reviews, any opinion. Mm -hmm. We should be making spaces except for those situations. Like, I mean, I mean, apart from just those situations where their voice matters the most. I mean, I remember when I was a film, w w earlier on, when certain outlets would call me because the subject is diversity, but they wouldn't call me for other subjects. And that doesn't work. I can't be a film critic just to talk about whenever the industry cares about diversity. Like, it's gotta be an ongoing thing. So. I think, who, 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 like, you know, what's my role in this? I think uh, I could, the best I could do is champion female voices and then try and find the opportunities to work with female. I'm, there's a reason I said yes to your podcast. <laughs> like it, it was because two women asked me to come and talk about these issues. I'm like, yeah, I'm coming, right? So, but I mean, um, uh, what's it called? I, I generally say no to these things. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> um, it was in our lovely website. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see the website. It was I just the saw, I saw the email. Logo. I saw Maya and Aisha, and I'm like, yeah, I'm coming. <laughs> That's fine, right? But, uh, but, in ter but I think everyone has to just, on a day-to-day -day basis, consider about, like, look around their team and see, like, am I hearing different opinions, or do I just want to be comforted with the opinions I feel comfortable with? So this is the end of our first episode of season three of The Gaze. Thanks for tuning in and listening. And in the next few episodes, you're going to hear both established and more emerging filmmakers. And you're also going to hear about various initiatives in TV and in film that really are addressing and trying to grapple with this whole gender parity issue. Yeah, and if you want to find any links or references we mentioned in the episode, you can visit our website, www.thegazeradio.com to find out more. And we look forward to having you back next month. Wait, before we go, Maya, what was your favorite part of doing this episode? 
My favorite part of this episode was just hanging out with you, Aisha. Oh, <laughs> Maya, please. But no, I actually loved it. I, I really enjoyed speaking with all these um, these players in the industry. They really gave fabulous interviews and were really generous with their time. That's true. And it was so fun to bop around the city with you and go visit all these people in different places. So listen in next month for episode two of season three.